Hey y'all, welcome to Footnotes and Witness. I'm Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and to find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. Okay, so we've been talking about Jesus's crew, his apostles, the disciples, those people who he chose to start his ministry with and who would eventually go throughout the region and start the Christian church. So hopefully you've seen throughout this time that Jesus chose a motley crew of people. There are some quiet people that we don't actually know much about. There are people who definitely need a little bit more limelight. There are people who throw tantrums and have parts in the right place, but don't always have the best execution. Today we're going to talk about James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot. There isn't a whole lot to say about James, so that's where we're going to start, because there's quite a bit of controversy with the zealot. (laughs) Let's start with James. So yes, another James. There are many Jameses. This is James, son of Alphaeus. And that's about all we know. Yeah, just a reminder that Hebrew for James is Jacob, and the Greek meaning is supplanter. This is not the brother of John, and this is not the brother of Jesus. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. Sometimes he's called lesser or little, and this is really just a way of distinguishing between the Jameses. It may have meant that he was younger than James, brother of John, but we don't definitively know that. He's first mentioned in that list of the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. He's only mentioned in the list of the apostles, like some of our other unseen apostles and disciples. The question that I thought of is just simply, do you ever feel unseen? We don't know what James, son of Alphaeus' story is. We know that whenever it says among the 12 or the 12 were following Jesus, that he was part of that crew. So we can kind of discern some of those things that he might have been a part of, but we don't have individual stories like we do with Peter. We don't have individual stories like we do with Judas. But what we can see is that he was individually and uniquely known by Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt unseen? (laughs) It's a tough question. Sometimes, if you're really being honest, you might be in a crowded room full of friends and family and still feel unseen. That's totally possible. Maybe it's just that you're in a season of singleness and you desperately want to be in a relationship. I would say that some of those people definitely feel unseen. What does that look like? How does that affect your walk with Jesus? I know some very wonderful, delightful people that are struggling through the seasons of singleness, have and some who still are. That doesn't mean that they're bad Christians. That doesn't mean they don't love Jesus. And it definitely doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love them. It just means that for some of us, our seasons sometimes are unseen. And that's hard to deal with. God, why would you want this for me? Why do I have a desire to be seen and yet I'm unseen? And I don't have any good answers for that. (laughs) I would love to tell you that you can take your unseenness, you can take your loneliness to God in prayer, and it will just magically go away. (laughs) That if you just pray, it will be like taking a pill and all of a sudden you won't feel lonely. But that also is just not true. Walking with Jesus is not a magic trick, and he's not a pill. He's not a consumable product. 
that you take and dispose away of. It's a relationship that takes time, attention, and effort. So yes, in your times of loneliness, take it in prayer. Take it to God in prayer. And sometimes those prayers are going to look like screaming, angry, bitter fights. God, I'm so lonely. Why would you do this to me? And sometimes it's going to be that sad, resigned, I feel so alone. Where are you? And sometimes it is going to make you feel better. Sometimes it is going to be, God, I feel alone. I feel like you've done this to me. But I know that you see the unseen. Even though I may not feel like I'm not alone, I know because you've shown me in your word that you do see the unseen, that you knew James, son of Alphaeus, individually and uniquely, and you loved him and you cared for him and you made him a part of your life. And so even though I may not feel like that right now, I know that you can do that. And I know that you're trying to do that. So help me see that. Help me feel that because right now I don't. Sometimes that's going to make you feel better, but sometimes it's not. If we told everybody that there would be no pain or misery or loneliness when following Jesus, we would not be honest because we do live in a broken world. And what we have in this is the hope that this is not permanent. This is not our home. This is a temporary place. This is the in-between before we actually get to spend eternity with our Father. And so sometimes it's going to be lonely. Sometimes we're going to feel unseen. And the only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. James, son of Alphaeus, he is unseen to us. We don't know his stories. We don't know his accounts. But we know that he was in Jesus's crew, that Jesus saw him. And that is good news. That's awesome. So take it in prayer. And sometimes you're going to feel better. And sometimes you're not. But that doesn't mean that you stop trying. Because it will make a difference in the long haul of your life. If you keep up that intentional relationship with your weariness, with your loneliness, Jesus does hear you. And we see that. We know that. But maybe that isn't something that you struggle with, feeling unseen or lonely. Then my question on the flip side of that is, if you are honest with yourself, what sort of recognition do you seek What sort of recognition do you need to feel appreciated and valued and loved? Most of our acts of service, most of our acts of love go without much recognition at all. (laughs) That's kind of the nature of serving. But is that good enough for you? At the end of the day, if you do something that takes away from your personal time or money, maybe it takes away time from your own family, Is the recognition of doing the right thing enough? Being seen by Jesus, is that enough? Or if you're being honest with yourself, do you need the recognition of others to make your service worth it? This is another one of those great questions I call a heart check question. (laughs) These are questions that are not necessarily fun, but usually provide for honest growth for refining and for noticing really ugly things about my own heart. And exposure is a gift. Sometimes it feels really terrible to find out something about yourself that's not very pretty. 
But that exposure, it truly is a gift because then you know what to take to God in prayer. And you can say, I see this about myself and I don't want to be that way. Because no amount of self-help books or counseling or any of those things is actually going to change your heart. Only Jesus can change your heart. Now, I'm a huge fan of counseling. I see a counselor regularly myself. I think an objective, trained voice in your life is never a bad thing. But no matter how much you realize about your behavior and others, it's not possible for you to change your heart or others. Only Jesus can do that. And what's really great is when you have the exposure of these heart check questions, you can take those things to Jesus in prayer and have the hope of real change. I guarantee you, I would be a very different person if I had not had that hope. I was not always the stay-at-home Bible study podcast making bomb. I've had some dark times, and it was through the hope that Jesus could actually change my heart, and then watching him do it, that I ended up where I am today. And I hope that we continue on that journey. And 10 years from now, I look much different than I do today. So what kind of recognition do you seek in your life? Okay, next is Simon the Zealot. Well, before I even get started here, let me remind you once again that I am a stay-at-home mom. I homeschool my kids. I cross-stitch a lot. I don't have a degree. Um, I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a historian. I have a super history buff nerd husband, um, and I love a good documentary, but I don't actually have any degrees. I'm not a professional. Okay. So this is based on my own personal research and mostly my own opinions. Okay. So Simon the Zealot, this is not to be confused with Simon Peter. This is Simon the Zealot. Again, thank you for helping us distinguish between people. Unfortunately, they distinguish between the Simons with a very mm, controversial word, (laughs) the Zealots. He's first mentioned, we'll just start with our basics, in Matthew chapter 10, and he's towards the end of the list. So it's actually in verse four. And zealot means passionate or zealous. It can also mean to be a Canaanite. So he lived in the first century. He was with the apostles. He was in Jesus's crew and was an eyewitness. So this is when those observations of the list can really be helpful because we have four lists of the apostles. And when it comes to Simon the Zealot, we have two different accounts. So in Mark and Matthew, the Greek word is definitely not something I can pronounce. But if you want to look up the logos number, it's G2581. So just a reminder, this is down in the description show notes. But if you're using a concordance or an interlinear dictionary, This is the number that you can look up to find exactly the word. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it at all. This is for like super word nerds. But just a reminder, I talked about it very early on in the podcast, but my main resource for biblical definitions is blueletterbible.com. You can use it on a computer and they also have a free app that you can put on your phone. Either way that you use it, you just search for the word or for the individual scripture, you click on it and it will pull up a menu of options, including something called interlinear. And that is going to break down word for word the translation, and it will show you the original word either in Hebrew or in Greek. 
So just in case you didn't know, let me explain very quickly. Our new English translations were not English translated from French, translated from Latin, translated from Greek. Every time there's a new translation, they go back to the original language, back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek. So actually, every translation that we get is closer and closer to being more and more accurate because we're also getting more samples as archaeology is developing and we get more scrolls and parchments to compare with other samples that we already have. So our English translations are taken from Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. So when you click on the interlinear, for example, on the list of the apostles, you can click on the individual word that was translated into zealot in English and see what it was in the original language. And this is a great tool for comparing because if one word is translated many different ways, a lot of times it has to do with the context. But since this is just a list of names, it's very interesting to see the difference. So in Matthew and Mark, the Greek word, like I said, is G2581. It's Canaanites. I don't speak Greek. I don't know how to say it correctly. But it literally means Canaanite. So that is the person who came from Cana. And it's used only two times in the whole New Testament, just in this list of apostles to describe Simon in Mark and Matthew. Now, on the other two accounts of Luke and Acts, it means zealous, passionate. So that's why it's translated into zealot. So when you look in the list of Mark and Matthew, it'll say Simon the Canaanite. But if you look on the list of Luke or Acts, it'll say Simon the zealot. So here's where the controversy begins. (laughs) So we don't really know exactly what's going on here. But we have a couple of very plausible theories. Basically, Simon Peter didn't want to be confused with the new Simon. Maybe Simon was just really, really intense and just earned that nickname or that moniker of being zealous and passionate. And so that's what they called him. It's kind of like the Sons of Thunder, right? Well, that's one theory. The other theory, which gets a lot of attention, requires a little bit of a history lesson. (laughs) So there was an extreme political group within the Israelite people called the Zealots. Now, this was a political party, and their main opposition to Rome was a religious stance. They were against polytheism. So poly means multiple, more than one, and theism means the study or the worship of a god. So polytheism means that the people worship more than one god. And we know this from our middle school history, right? The Greek and Roman gods. There are so many, I always get confused. It's not my jam. There's like a god of lightning and a god of thunder and a god of parties and nobody cares. It's too many, right? Okay, so that's polytheism. And so the zealots were in favor of monotheism. And that was actually kind of new for the world. It was a new thing to have on stage. So not like totally new. I don't want to get any angry emails from historians out there. But as far as like main popular religions, the fact that the Hebrews only worshiped one God was kind of a newer thing. And it separated them from their neighbors because they didn't worship Yahweh and Jeff, the God of biscuits or whatever Roman God there was. They only worshiped one God. In fact, it was very integral to that worship that they only worship one God. It's one of the commandments, right? So that's monotheism. So this political party started with that opposition. They were opposed to the polytheism of Rome. 
Now, this political party over time became quite extreme. We have historical evidence that they actually became assassins. They were known as the dagger people or the dagger men, and that's a word called the Sakari. And so some of them were actually trained and then sent out to kill their political rivals, people that were going to be in charge of pushing polytheism on these people who wanted to keep their monotheism. Now, there was a recorded revolt that occurred somewhere around 66 to 70 AD, where the zealots were recorded to lead the charge. There's another historical event in 73 AD where the zealots were not going to be captured, and so many of them committed suicide. That was in a place called Masada. We have kind of a sense about what these zealots were. They were very passionate. Yes, they were very zealous, but they also you know, found a way to excuse political assassination and murder. So generally, it's not something that's well thought of. All of this helps us have this historical reverence for what a zealot might be. The problem is that these historical accounts of the revolts and the assassinations are almost 30 years, 20 to 30 years after we know that Jesus was crucified. And so was he part of an extreme political party while he was in Jesus's crew? I don't know. From the historical side, if this is something that you want to get more information on, definitely go and do it. Go to your library, ask your pastor for books, whatever it takes, and do the research on your own. There's nothing wrong with that. What does this all have to do with our conversation right now? That's a valid question. So let's just look at the different extremes that we have here. Either way, Simon was passionate for his religion. He was a passionate Jew. And if you remember back to when we talked about Matthew, the tax collector, he was a blood traitor. And he is also in Jesus's crew. So if we think about these two people and where they come from, I'm betting that there was some conflict there. (laughs) Now, maybe the other men in the crew just accepted the people that Jesus brought in. Maybe they had a supernatural just ability to trust God and there was no problems whatsoever. I highly doubt it. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's possible. But I'm betting that there were some hard times about coming to terms with the different types of people that were in this crew. You have someone who is considered an outcast to your culture, a blood traitor to the very thing that you stand for, and working in cahoots with your oppressor with someone who may or may not have been in a political party who is actively trying to assassinate that oppressor. So even if he wasn't on the assassination train, he was in that political party, right? So just think about the dynamics of what Jesus put in his crew. He called these people individually and welcomed them into his group, and he knew their story, right? They are uniquely and individually known by Jesus, and yet he thought this was worth doing. Here's the rub. Historically, we don't know. Not exactly. We don't know if he was part of an extreme political party who carried out assassinations, or if he was just really passionate, or maybe a little bit of both. But as I've said before, and I will say again, and hopefully it becomes part of your Bible study mantra, let scripture interpret scripture. Let the things that are really clear be clear, and the things that aren't super clear are not meant for you. So you don't even need to worry about it. We know that he was passionate. 
at the very base level, we can tell that he was at least passionate and possibly from Cana. But what that means is that he would have had some difficulties with some of the other people in Jesus's crew. Hopefully human nature did not win out all the time and that they were able to form tight bonds and be in a crew that trusted one another because they could actually see what they were working towards, that Jesus was worth it. And I definitely think there have been times where Jesus has been worth it. I've had to overcome my own personal feelings, my own personal convictions because of the love of Jesus. There have been people close to our family who had some very offensive thoughts and words, but they were part of our family and they showed love to the people that they were with. And I knew that I needed to show love to them. And it was difficult sometimes. So here's another great example of why we're studying this. To see Jesus's character. If you're a person who really shies away from conflict, maybe there's something to glean here. I don't know. It's definitely something worth praying about. So when we think about Simon the Zealot, my two questions are, has there ever been a label put on you that you didn't agree with? I wonder how Simon the Zealot would feel about that label today. Maybe he wouldn't like it. I don't know. (laughs) I know that I've been labeled many times with words that I don't agree with. That I feel like I may come off as being really judgmental. But I'm usually being judgmental of myself. But it takes some time to get to know me and to know my heart. To know that I'm not trying to judge you. Sometimes those labels have hurt. Have you ever had a label that you don't necessarily agree with? My other question is, what is the main word that you think your friends would use to describe you? Maybe friends or family, but if they had to describe you in one word, what do you think it would be? I think zealous is actually a great word to be passionate, to be a defender. I think we've used it in a way that in our modern world, we have a negative connotation to it. I wouldn't mind being called zealous if it was zealous for Jesus. I think the problem comes when I'm zealous for like, you know, cake and Dr. Pepper. But being zealous for Jesus, that's a label I could live with. I think as we're talking about heart check questions, this could be a really scary thing and a really good thing to ask your friends. Hey, if you had to describe me in one word, what would it be? Or if you had to describe my faith in one word, what would it be? It might be really scary to ask that question, but if you have good friends who also love Jesus, then you might also find some affirmations and encouragement in that question. And it would be a really great way to be honest and vulnerable with one another. And I also want to just put it out there that if you're going to ask this question of someone for yourself, they're probably going to want to know what the answer is the other way around. So before you ask your friend, hey, what's the word that you would describe my faith as? Make sure that you know what word you would describe their faith as. And if that word is not very kind or nice, (laughs) that might be a good indicator that that's not the person that you want to ask the question to. So hopefully, whether you're unseen or seen in a very particular way, you can rest assured that Jesus sees you, that he chose you, that he knows you uniquely and individually, and he loves you. And that is definitely worth celebrating. 
Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.